listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message. I I didn't just want to talk about it, I wanted to be in on it. Our second reading is from Luke 13, six through nine. Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and when when he went to look for fruit on on it, he went to look for fruit on it but didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for just one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Church, please give a warm welcome to our bishop, my pastor, Todd Hunter. Thanks, man. Thank you. Hey, Cornerstone, nice to meet you. You know, it works the other way around. I've been hearing about you guys, too, and I didn't know you existed until I got here and saw, yeah, yeah, there's the people here, and uh, it's great to be with you. So as John said, he uh, threw me this softball question about Christians in our current culture wars, and I thought this morning I would just try to give you a different perspective on it that might be helpful. My, my kind of basic view is that Perspective makes all the difference in the world, and I love illustrating it in one of those dopey jokes. Have you ever heard those dopey jokes where there's like four guys in a little airplane, and there's only three parachutes? Okay, well, the first thing to know is the only thing worse than dad jokes are bishop jokes. But anyway, here we go. (laughs) This will help you get a fresh perspective. So four guys in a little airplane. There's only three parachutes. The four guys are a young pilot who's like in his early 30s. He's got four little kids at home. There's a man who's reputed to be, you know, one of those guys like the smartest guys in the world. I forget what he did, but it was something like he networked all the world's banking systems or something like that. And then there was this really old retired minister and a young boy of about 12. So you know how it goes. The plane starts crashing. Four guys in it, only three parachutes. The young pilot says, look, I got four little kids at home. If I die, my wife will kill me. And so he takes one of the parachutes and jumps. And the smartest guy in the world says, hey, look, I'm the smartest guy in the world, and kind of the whole global banking system depends on me. It's important that I live. So he takes a parachute and jumps. Well, that just leaves one parachute and the young boy and the old pastor. The old pastor in his late 80s says to the young boy, you know what? I've lived a really good life. I really feel like I've done everything God's asked me to do. You have your whole life in front of you. 
You take that last parachute and jump. And the little boy looks up and says, ah, relax, Reverend. The smartest guy in the world just jumped out with my backpack. (laughs) So you see, what one intuitively thinks to be the case uh, isn't always the case. So like, seriously, Jesus, you're calling for patience? With something that's clearly not bearing fruit? Seriously? When we want to say from one point of view to the other, you're a waste of oxygen. In the same way in this parable, the the tree is wasting soil. This tree that's not producing the fruit that it's supposed to be producing. It's wasting soil. And we tend to want to say to one another, oh, really? You're of that partisan political view? You're a waste of oxygen. And I wish you would just go away. And to the other group, similar things were said. Well, the first first perspective I want you to get this morning is to... To most people who were in Jesus' various audiences, he sounded like a newfangled, naive, wimpy prophet saying really nonsensical, impractical things about love and forgiveness and acceptance. And you just need to know that people in Jesus' day were every bit as uptight as we are. The zealots were saying, no, the true way to be Israel is to sharpen your swords and and pray your prayers. And they were literally terrorists. They were holy warriors. And the Qumran sect said, these zealots are crazy. The way to be faithfully Jewish is to split from society. And they went out and lived in what's known as the caves of the Qumran. And you've probably heard of that because that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And so their whole thing was, no, 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 you have nothing to do with society. If you have anything to do with society, that is by definition compromise. And the Herodians, they were the group of people who said, no, no, the way to really be faithfully Jewish today is to get along with Roman authorities and to do so through the temple of Herod. So they had their warring political factions as well. And Jesus comes rolling into their towns with none of those things in his mind and critiquing all of them as occasion arose because he had in his mind a completely different perspective. To Jesus, the zealots' opponents were the people he came to love. And to heal and to serve. And so the zealots had this thing going for them. I'm just picking them as one of the three. They had this really fervent, even extreme desire to overthrow Rome. And to most people around them, that seemed to be the right and good things to do. It was kind of normative to have that point of view. It seemed intuitively correct. So the zealots, what they were thinking was that our Jewish culture is being corrupted. And someone needs to be the resistance fighters. So we're the resistance fighters in our culture. And for most people, it was really a badge of honor. It was a good thing to be. And so Jesus then sounded like a pacifist ideologue. Completely impractical. But no matter how right the zealots seemed, their attitudes and their practices were not aligned to and did not harmonize with Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. The zealots' enemies, Roman Gentiles, were precisely the people Jesus came to give God's redemptive love. Are you feeling the tension? 
I'm a religious person, deeply religious. I am so religious that I'm willing to take up a sword to fight for the Jewish cause. And the objects of the point of my spear are Gentile, Roman Gentiles. And that's a good thing, except for Jesus came to save those people. And so it put him at complete odds with the zealots. It put him with different odds with the Qumran sect who wanted nothing to do with society because Jesus said, no, I'm here to actually touch lepers, not to run from them. I'm an agent of healing. I'm here to have parties at Levi's house with hated tax collectors. And Jesus wasn't about to compromise with Rome. Remember when he's arrested, he stands his ground and he is something very different than whatever's happening with Roman imperial power. So for Jesus, these counterintuitive things like love and mercy and forgiveness, these were Jesus's urgent and high contrast call for a new way of being Israel. It was a creative, healing, redeeming, nonviolent resistance over against the zealots wanting to seek violent revolution. And of course, today we see, thank God there's not a lot of, quote, shooting wars happening yet, but there's lots of verbal violence, there's lots of emotional violence, and there's this modern form of zealotry that's increasingly the way in which Christian culture wars are fought. Here's the problem. Trying to do something in the name of God can wrongly rationalize warrior mentalities and practices against one's neighbors or against one's perceived enemies. And again, the problem is this turns our culture, it turns our neighborhoods into war zones, eliminating what they were meant to be, missionary contexts. Our neighborhoods were not meant to be divided up into red and blue or purple and then to be fought over. They were meant to be contexts in which we were called to lovingly engage with people. Now, if you want to see the sort of zealotry or the really Christian nationalism, what it is in full flower, full bloom, and I, I genuinely hate saying this. I do not like being critical about anybody or anything. It's just really hard for me to do. But if you want to see this in full flower, you're seeing it every day in your news feeds from the Ukraine where you have religiously rationalized war. So what only a year or so ago would have been young couples that a priest was marrying, babies that are now blown to bits were objects of baptism. Old women who you see wandering out of their homes covered in blood and dust were, would have been the objects of a funeral. But now you have religiously inspired rationale for blowing them up. That's what would have happened if the zealots would have won in Jesus' day. So who knows what Christian nationalism is going to become in our country. We can only pray that it doesn't become much. Because that's what it is in full flower. You have a marrying of religious zealotry with imperial power turned militaristic on people who are supposed to be the objects of our love and healing and redemption, the people to whom we are supposed to be present to in Christ's love. So I want to suggest that Christians are not called to grab control of our political and civic structures or our secular institutions. 
and that we're not actually engaged, meant to engage in a civil war over values. That what we're really meant to do is patiently teach and model the way of Jesus and to lose our life, if necessary, in so doing. There's a very well-known missiologist, Douglas John Hall, who put it this way, our Lord's metaphors for his community of witness were all of them modest ones. A little salt, a little yeast, a little light. Christendom, though, Christendom, though tried to be great and large and magnificent. It thought itself to be the object of God's expansive grace, and it forgot the meaning of its election to worldly responsibility. So in this paradigm that I'm suggesting this morning, we're not called to chop down cultural trees. That's what this lesson in Luke 13 teaches us. Rather, we're to be, imagine Jesus' analogy, we're we're meant to be manure. That's pretty humble. And manure doesn't work unless you work it into the soil of our culture. Right? You can't be standing off hating that culture, name-calling that culture, despising that culture, and be an agent of redemption. It just doesn't work that way. Your laundry detergent only works when you put it in the, in the tub, right? Well, this is all Jesus is saying. We're like manure, meant to work our way into the soil as we patiently wait for the redemption of the world. But for now, wheat grow amongst tares. And there's sheep amongst goat, and there's goats, and there's light amongst darkness. And we, we're meant to live in that tension, even as Jesus lived in that tension, being constantly misunderstood, constantly despised, constantly rejected. Not only pushed to the margins, but was meant to be pushed over a cliff and killed. Yet he stayed present to that. He stayed present to the tension, to the sin, to the brokenness. Uh, in his father's love, but that's a, that's a sermon for another day. There's a very esteemed historian, some of you may know of, John Marsden, who I think helpfully said that when we think about these, this cultural tension that we all feel, um, we can't go backwards to a secular enlightenment. But nor can we go backwards to a Christian consensus. And the culture war stances, he says, are not helpful alternatives. And I would say, rather, our calling is to be God's agents of healing. That our calling in the world is to be a medicine of sorts. That we're meant to be steadfastly present to human sin and error. Again, like compost clinging to the soil around the tree of God's good creation. Eugene Peterson memorably put it this way in his book, Tell It Slant. He says, when it came to doing something about what's wrong in the world, what's wrong in our cultures, Jesus is best known for his fondness for the minute, the invisible, the quiet, the slow, yeast, salt, seeds, light, and manure. So the role of the church is to loosen soil, to stay in it, assisting, nourishing towards fruitful health. We're not called to fling poisonous weed killer around as a tactic in a culture war. Yes, the kingdom of God is an alternative culture, but it's never the rationale for creating a battlefield in culture wars. Rather, I would want to say that consistent healing 
and, and, and that which is consistent with our redemptive mission, it can actually never grow from culture wars. Our vibe, our ethos, according to Peter, is gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Or as Paul said to the Corinthians, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. So Jesus knew that the war-oriented zealots and other popular social, political, religious schemes on offer at the time that he was within Israel, Jesus knew that these were only going to lead people further astray from their calling to be world-healing, redemptive people of God. And so what Jesus was doing was really putting on offer a wholly different way of self-identity for Israel and a different way of practicing their religion. And so in complete contrast to culture wars, the church is invited to something different. And again, quoting one of my favorite missiologists, Douglas John Hall, he says, from the, from the edges of imperial societies, a disciple community, possessing awareness of its changed relation to power. Now, again, that's a whole other sermon. That's a weekend uh, seminar. You get a PhD in changed relationships to power. But us as a disciple community, increasingly be a, being aware of a changed relation to power, it's from there that we can then offer a prophetic vigilance for God's world, his beloved world, that when we were a part of the power elite, when we were fighting for places at the table of the power elite, we could never achieve and we never have. We've only ever compromised or engaged in culture war on someone else's terms. There is study after study after study that's been done in the last seven years that shows that virtually every pastor in America is concerned that their people are more discipled by either Fox News or One America or whatever or MSNBC or whoever else on the left. And that that, that is really who is creating worldviews and deep belief systems in people. And then that is maybe tried to sort of loosely be put over a Christian and biblical worldview. I don't know anybody who doubts that that's a thing right now. And again, not everybody, not accusing anybody, but in general, that's a thing. And Jesus faced the same thing. Are you hearing me? When Jesus said um, to those who have ears to hear, he didn't mean like, um, excuse me, ma'am, could you move your hair so that I could see if you have a flap of flesh on the side of your head? You think that's what Jesus meant? No, here's what Jesus knew, that people were hearing him to filter and managing him, to filter and manage him according to their previously held points of view. No, I can't hear you, Jesus. I'm a zealot. No, I can't really hear you, Jesus. I'm a part of the Qumran sect. And you don't make any sense for the Herodian point of view. Are you feeling me here? This is not a new dynamic that we're living in. It has happened throughout 2,000 years of human history. And what has to happen is that every single one of us has to decide for whom are we learning to do life. You will never answer a bigger evangelistic question than from whom are you learning to do life? From whom are you deriving a set of values, a vision, a worldview, a paradigm by which you understand the various things that are going on around you. This is a classic human tension. 
And so with God's story as, a, as our guide, I want to say this morning, with Jesus as our model and the spirit animating our efforts in this direction, then I think we really can give up winning power through culture wars. And there's a way to do it. And I always think of Edwin Friedman and his book, A Failure of Nerve, and that's really about family systems, and then he turned it towards leadership principles, and I've really turned it towards missiology. I think if you were to say to me, well, okay, Hunter, if we don't engage in culture wars, then what's the redemptive alternative? Here it is. I want to ask you this morning to completely differentiate as a follower of Jesus. Like as radical as you can possibly be, as deeply committed, your heart, soul, mind, will, body, your social self, all deeply committed to becoming a follower of Jesus, right? So you completely differentiate. And then you stay connected to our broken world as a non-anxious presence. That's the Jesus way. Right? I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear my father saying. If you're worried about me pulling an ox out of the ditch on Sunday, well, ask dad. If you're worried about me uh, touching a leper, uh, you know, ask my father. If you're worried about me letting a woman of ill repute weep on my feet, you think that's bad behavior, ask my dad. But what I'm doing here is I'm completely differentiated as the second person of the Holy Trinity. I'm completely differentiated as a son of God. And what do I do with that? I stay connected to broken creation. I stay connected to hurting humanity. I stay connected with zealots and the Qumran and uh, the Herodians, those who disagree with me. They are the precise people I've come to convince that there's a new and better way of being Israel. And it has to do with aligning your life with the inbreaking of God's kingdom in and through me. That's the alternative vision. And I want to say that, like, Paul really gets this. He really gets that it's impossible to love people we instinctively condemn. And that it's hard to desire the good of those we don't like. Those whose behaviors or belief systems are seriously off-putting to us. But in the incarnation of Christ, we learn something. And it's this, being with the bad can be good. And that loving proximity to unbelief is a hallmark of belief. That God is most noted for being the, for, as most noted as the being with God. That's what marks him. He's a being with sort of God. And this is what we read in the passage from 1 Corinthians 9 this morning. And put it back up if you would, please. <clears throat> Where Paul says, I, be, I voluntarily become a servant to any and all. And then he lists those people. It's because Paul was getting beat up like Jesus was. Paul, you're hanging around the wrong kind of people too. And he was constantly having to give a, a defense for his, uh, his apostolic ministry and especially to the church at Corinth. And that's why there's these letters between he and Paul. And so he's, how, he's really here being defensive, I guess in the best sense of that term, that this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I want you to note these four, phrase, these four phrases because this is the vision I want to leave you with this morning. This is what I think is the alternative to the culture war stance. I didn't take on their way of life. Go to the next phrase, please. I didn't take on their way of life. Do you see the differentiation in that? I'm completely self-differentiating. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. I'm completely self-differentiated. Next slide. But I entered their world. 
the sexually confused. I entered their world. People who we are politically antagonistic with. I entered their world. And I tried to experience things from their point of view. This is what we see in Paul. This is what we see in Je- I'm sorry, this is what we see in Jesus. This is what we see Paul mimicking that Jesus thing in his own life. And I could stand here as a former professor of evangelism. I could stand here and name evangelist after evangelist after evangelist for 2,000 years who have always done this. They've tried to be empathetic. They've, they've fully differentiated as Jesus, not taking on anybody's way of life, not losing their berries in Christ. But then they tried to give themselves to the various brokennesses of humanity. This is, this is the worldview from which great evangelists preach. They're truly empathetic. They've not forgotten that I used to be a broken person. You would have hated me. Parents surely hated me when I was a kid. And I, I got it. Like, you know, should have hated me, right? But an evangelist, in my case, Greg Laurie, you know, maybe you've heard on radio, pastor of Harvest in California. Like, he, I could feel the empathy from the stage. I feel he got me. He got sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and he got that there was something different and better, that there was an alternative on view. And this is always the heart of people who care about human brokenness. And this is what I would want to commend to you. That the culture wars have never worked. They didn't work in Jesus' day. The zealous never got anywhere. Neither did the Qumran, neither did the Herodians. The only thing that has gotten anywhere is for 2,000 years, the kingdom of God that Jesus embodied in his being taught in his teachings, modeled in his deeds of power, that little seed is becoming a huge mustard seed. I mean, a huge mustard plant that one day through that plant, the whole world will find redemption. The way we get get in on that story is we fully differentiate according to it and then we are manure in the brokenness of our society, experiencing things from their point of view so that we can be agents of healing. That, I think, is the vision of church and culture. Present to sin and pain in peace. Self-consciously, as agents of the kingdom, redemptive healers, modeling the way of Jesus without compromise, and forming communities like Cornerstone that invite others into the really surprising ways of Jesus. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.